They were high school sweethearts that got married and had a kid. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to our low effort, low quality podcast. We have some hot topics for you today and then a guest coming later in the episode. Dante Stallworth. Clap, 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 clap. Yes, NFL great Dante Stallworth has joined us for the latter half of this episode. Uh, but we're first going to catch you up on the news of the week. I have to tell you, I, I, w- I want to go to Burger King and get a pissed meal. I'm just I'm at that stage in the pregnancy where I just constantly feel kind of crappy. Are they still offering pissed meals? I thought that was a month a month long. Oh no, I thought oh no, I hope they are. I thought pissed meals were permanent. Uh, quite picture. amusingly, I believe it was a uh, a part of Mental Health Awareness Month. Oh well, that sucks. Um, so I don't think being pissed is really an issue in mental illness. It honestly. seems a little seems bit like weird. Part of the normal experience. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I don't know how mentally healthy you are if you're going to buy these meals. <laughs> so I mean, unless it's sort of like it a honey does trap. Make you aware? Yeah. Yeah, they're like, oh, and they buy it. You go on a registry, and and then they surveil you, make sure you know you don't do anything too self-destructive well, I mean, or whatever. I'm in a situation where this kid is positioned just like Jane was at this point in the last pregnancy, which means that she's constantly pushing against the interior sides of my rib cage with her feet. Mm-hmm. which feels, you know, sort of probably like what you think it would imagine to have someone kick you on the ribs from the inside. Uh, anyway, yeah. no, nothing you can do about that except try to have a rational conversation with them, which doesn't really work that well. You could kind of do like sort of flips and whatnot. You, you just know? try to urge them to not, you know, not do that, but mm-hmm. whatever. The real solution here is to have the kids. So that's only about six weeks or so away. So let's hope it comes soon later. Also, uh, I have another solution. What's that? Artificial wounds. Well, I mean, solutions for me in the here and now, mm, not yeah, solutions yeah. to the general mm, very problem. Selfish, very selfish. Very selfish. Oh, okay. Only think about, mm, well. you know. You try getting kicked in the ribs from the inside. So uh, inclusive ownership funds. Bernie actually took a big step towards uh, what you call funds socialism, which sounds like fun socialism. It is fun socialism. It funds socialism is fun socialism and what's what was what respect so i don't want to go too deep in this because we do have a interview with uh, mr peter gowan um coming up later friend of the show friend of the show um but uh jeff stein reported in the washington post that uh, bernie sanders is interested in um uh doing this thing that the labor party has been doing where basically if you're a big enough company they're going to require you to create this sort of trust uh, actually, the details on Bernie's plans are unclear, but this is the labor's plan. Uh, Bernie's might be different. I don't know. Uh, create this trust, and the f- firm will issue 10% of the shares to the trust, you know, and then the vo- the workers in that firm will be able to vote the shares, so they'll control 10% of the votes for any shareholder meetings, um, and they'll get the dividends from the shares. 
And so it's a form of kind of firm-based worker ownership, firm-based fund socialism. Uh, in the uh, labor version, there's now some modifications on it to m make it a little bit more widespread. You don't get all the dividends. You only get the dividends up to a certain cap. And then the excess over that goes to other things. You know, it's, it's an evolving concept, I should say. But um, it, is a, it is a step in the direction of fund socialism, which as, uh, you know, longtime listeners will know, I've been advocating vis-a-vis -vis the social wealth fund. Um, this is uh, in that family of policies, which I think is a very promising step because it at least gets us going in the in the direction of understanding, ah, oh, we need to try to take these shares. This is a good pathway uh, to go if we're, if we're going to try to get some kind of socialism going. One problem you know. I can see for these kinds of policies, and it, it's not a problem with the policy, it's a challenge, I guess, is how do you get mass support ignited? How do you mobilize people behind funds socialism? Because it's kind mm. of abstract in a way that I feel like not everybody will immediately understand. And well, it polls well. Th th this version of it polls well. The uh, Democracy Collaborative uh, Next System Project did a poll with YouGov uh, that you know presented this policy idea, um, and you know it was it polled actually quite well. The basic way, you know, I think the strategy that people are coming up with, messaging wise, is sort of you know, and uh, to emphasize worker ownership. Like, don't you think workers should have a stake? Don't you think, you know, and people like that. In fact, a lot of people who are maybe not even too, too lefty nominally like the idea of, oh, you, you, workers should have a say in their company and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, yeah, actually, so. I was on Left, Right, and Center and discussed inclusive ownership funds briefly last week and rich lowry the editor of national review said yeah i'm all in, i'm all for owners uh, employees having a stake in their firms but we already have co-ops basically uh it is similar to a co-op but it's different because you know if you try to turn google into a co-op it would how would you even accomplish that like right, you would need right. some sort of mechanism and so that this would be that mechanism uh, you know so i think that's what how how it would be sold um is in this sort of worker ownership model which people you know pick up on and on the societal level what do you mean so if you're doing like a social wealth fund also the called a sovereign wealth fund the social wealth fund is is an unfortunate uh, is i think the technically best approach to it for a lot of reasons but is the harder sell. I think that's in fact why you're getting these inclusive ownership fund type designs that at least nominally are about workers owning their own companies or whatever because there's something that 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 keys in on. Whereas yeah. the social wealth fund you're like, "Oh, this is actually technically better and then we all own it and then it's not tied to your company and so that's actually better and what about People who don't belong to any company. What about independent contractors? What about uh, public sector workers? What about, you know, there's all these sort of technical ways in which it's better and fairer yeah. and that sort of thing. But the problem is, oh, it's a government fund. I don't want the government. You know, there's all this sort of anti-government sentiment yeah. out there. Right. I, I want the workers. And it's like, oh, well, we've got this thing for the workers. So, you know, it's... Um, but you, you could see it evolve as, as, it, as it seems to be to some degree in the UK as a kind of uh, split yeah. thing. Oh, some of it will go to the workers and some of it will go to a social fund, which is, you know, yes, the government's involved, you know, but it's for, for society. We all own it 
similar like you see with the Alaska Permanent Fund, where yeah. the way that they've sold that over time is, uh, or even initially, is to be like, this is your fund. You all own it. It's not a, I mean, yes, the government facilitates it, but it is your fund. It's, it's you know, so, but but I think that's, you know, that's that's where we are, is, is navigating the complications between uh, a, a more society-level ownership being the kind of fairer, more technically sound approach and the firm level ownership being more compelling to people as a messaging matter because it's worker mm. ownership, yeah. not government ownership. A little bit of a catch-22 you're in there. Yeah, you, you massage it and there are the, you know, and you can blend the two in, in all sorts in politics. of ways. We'll see how, how it develops. But, but a, it's a, a step has been taken and I think this also distinguishes Bernie from Warren in a way that people have kind of been looking for a distinction you know, between the two candidates, I think this puts him, you know, more in the camp of, look, Bernie's an honest-to-God democratic socialist. He does. I, you know, I, in this sort of uh, inter-scene uh, uh, policy wonk uh, yeah. think tank world, there uh, has been this line that has developed that is very uh, much driven by the Warren camp and, and that is part of the Warren camp. That is to say uh, we don't need ownership um formally uh and and in some ways tries to proclaim that ownership is not even a a real thing that share ownership is not a real thing um and all you need is better stakeholder capitalism all you need is uh let's get the companies to pay more attention to their workers and to their customers and to the community and less attention to their shareholders and bondholders and that sort of thing um and you know, that's a view you can hold, but my perspective is, no, you, you really want to try to get in on the ownership. Like, you, you, you know, we can play this game and be like, oh, we can leave the ownership yeah. in their hands and just kind of change how it's how it's managed. Um, but I don't know. I feel like that's going to bite you. Well, <laughs> ownership, yeah. If you ignore ownership, you're ignoring significant power relationships and differentials. Yes, and I, and I think there's a bit of a, na- I don't know, sl- somewhat of a naivete around... Uh, uh, this notion that, uh, well, the reason why shareholders have uh, so much power in our society is because people uh, are confused and they think that they're owners. But if we can convince them that, in fact, shareholders are not owners, that nobody owns corporations, mm. that they're unowned, if we can convince them of that, like like it's driven by a mistake. Yeah. We c- in, it's, instead just, of it's a worthless semantic uh, whatever whether they're owners or not they have power they yes. have control that's the key is like <laughs> whatever you want to call it like the reason why they're in the driver's seat is because they have the power and not because p- there's a confusion on some level about oh well they're actually the owners oh i didn't know that oh they're not actually oh well maybe it's different then like I, I feel like that's a mistake as well but you know so i think that is the there's a line drawn ownership matters yeah, ownership has a role in politics, and I think the which it obviously does. This sort of stakeholder capitalism, accountable capitalism, Warren sort of Roosevelt sort of yeah. milieu has said uh, ownership doesn't matter, and in fact, ownership is not even a uh, a thing that's based on a confusion or whatever. Um, mm. So you know. Meanwhile, uh, in the Catholic world, last week an interesting document emerged called the Figueroa Report. It's sort of a digest of segments of personal correspondences, letters uh, that Theodore McCarrick, and and you'll remember Ted McCarrick as uh, a former cardinal, former archbishop of Washington, D.C., 
uh, former Archbishop of Newark, New Jersey. Uh, I mean, he's had a very, very long career in the church, starting in about 1965, uh, mostly out of the Archdiocese of New York, New Jersey, and then D.C., although he had some oddball little appointments here and there elsewhere. He was involved in the Catholic University of America, and he was an extraordinary fundraiser. Uh, he founded the Papal Foundation, which is uh, an, a fundraiser for the church, uh, which has been enormously successful. Uh, so, I, I mean, he, and he was a fixture in Washington, D.C. for a long time, so he was pretty involved in American politics. He, I believe, was a part of Bo Biden's funeral. Uh, he was a, a regular attendee at Joe Biden's Christmas parties. Uh, this was a guy who got around D.C. pretty well. Um, and, and then it was discovered, or it, it came out, in 2018 that he had uh, sexually abused a boy uh, for many years going into his young adulthood. Uh, that guy, James Grine, spoke to the Times about it uh, and then participated in an Archdiocese of New York investigation into McCarrick and uh, that he had also been sexually inappropriate with seminarians uh, while he was uh, bishop in Newark. Uh, so turned out a bad guy and pretty prolific, it sounds like, in his uh, wrongdoings. Uh, so Figueredo was a secretary for McCarrick in the 90s in Newark, and apparently he was making copies of emails and letters that he was translating uh, later on in his relationship with McCarrick in the 2000s and so forth as McCarrick communicated with the Vatican. And, you know, one of the big hullabaloos in the church that came about in 2018 was, you know, did Pope Francis know about and were there sanctions placed on McCarrick, which were then subsequently totally unenforced and ignored, mm -hmm. allowing this guy who should have been out of church life completely, if not turned into the police, to continue fundraising, continue representing the church, continue having access to people, so on and so forth. This was an accusation made by a, a uh, guy named Vigano, who also made a lot of other sort of trad complaints about Pope Francis' papacy and the church in general. And so it got kind of tied up in politics. But for me, the relevant question was always like, just is it true? Like, put aside whatever the political issues are for you in terms of who's the good pope, who's the bad pope, who are the good cardinals, who are the bad cardinals, and just answer the question, were there sanctions placed on McCarrick? that were subsequently totally unenforced mm -hmm. as a result of his misconduct? And the answer is yes, it looks like. So the Figueredo report shows sections of letters where McCarrick is corresponding with Vatican officials acknowledging that there have been sanctions placed on him, mm -hmm. saying he doesn't like it, claiming he's innocent, or that he just had a sort of uh, uh, miscalculation of judgment or made a mistake or something like that but deserves to be allowed to continue to do basically anything he wants. He especially mm -hmm. liked to travel and fundraise. He was part of like a Vatican envoys to the Middle East and so on and so forth. China, uh, when all of these deals were kind of being worked out over there. And I mean, I, I think that it shines an interesting light on what's going on in the church right now because I think for the majority of us, the sex abuse crisis and its cover-up mm -hmm. look like an issue of a powerful institution making calculated moves mm -hmm. to protect itself. Mm -hmm. What this suggests is that a lot of the sex abuse cri 
Christ's cover-up is lawlessness mm-hmm. and weakness in the institution, mm-hmm. where you have attempts by senior Vatican officials, including, it seems, Pope Benedict himself, to censure or correct or place sanctions on McCarrick, such as removing him from public life, stopping him from traveling on behalf of the Vatican, putting an end to his fundraising and therefore his power. And McCarrick just says, uh, actually, no thanks on all those penalties and completely ignores them. And the Figurito report goes on to detail many, many years of McCarrick traveling, representing the Vatican, doing public ministry, everything he was not supposed to do after he was sanctioned. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. Like, of course, the Pope probably didn't like it. And, the you know, he obviously wasn't the only one who knew about it. But the Vatican Secretary of State, who's cited in the letters, and Pope Benedict, and so on and so forth, none of these people were able to do anything about him. The nuncio, nobody. Mm-hmm. Nuncio is Pope's ambassador to the United States. Right. Nobody was able to do anything about him. and it, Because it, of the rules in the church around authority or... Uh, just they have the authority. It's just how are you going to enforce it? What are you going to do? You're going to have to go well, to the you'd press. You'd have to call the police. I yeah, guess. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so the only way for the church, it appears, to maintain any kind of order internally or control over this is to go to authorities outside the church. They need their own security guards. Well, right. I mean, you need to be able to like just put a net around someone and say, that's it, you're going to Vatican jail. But but that just doesn't really happen. And so they basically rely on guys like McCarrick, who have a lot of authority in the church, saying, okay, that's fine. I'll I'll respond to these sanctions and take them seriously out of the goodness of my heart. But it's a dude like McCarrick. Like, is he really going to do that? Mm-hmm. No. And so so the church begins to look instead like instead of being an extremely powerful calculating institution that's taking all of these measured efforts to hide these crimes, it looks like an institution that's basically stumbling and scrambling in the light of the crimes of especially powerful people like McCarrick to do anything at all about it. And the only thing that really happened in the end was this Archdiocese of New York investigation began with James Grind and it got media attention. Because mm-hmm. there had been other reports and letters and so on about McCarrick over the years that we know about. This was the first investigation, but it picked up media interest. Mm-hmm. So then you had an authority outside the church that was able to pressure the church, which appeared to not only cause the church to act, but it served as a kind of enforcement mechanism for McCarrick. Like, how are you going to travel around go do fundraising events and so on and so forth and be good Uncle Ted if the entire media is focused on you with a fury knowing the allegations against you, mm-hmm. right? You become like Harvey Weinstein. You can have all the power and money in the world, but as long as there is this enormous force of the media and then, of course, uh, at the point at which this all became publicized, you know, the, the civil authorities got involved, the, the police and so forth in different jurisdictions, different DAs got involved, then enforcement became a real possibility, mm-hmm. it looks like. And and eventually the Vatican did take the highest, you know, measures against him. They laicized him. They made him not a cleric anymore. And, you know, um, he's just a normal person now. I don't, I don't know how much of a severe penalty that is. Maybe that speaks to the lack of enforcement options here. Mm-hmm. But he can't do what he was doing anyway mm-hmm. anymore. But I don't know how much of that... 
uh, you can really chalk up to like, oh, yeah, no, that's a show of force and how much of it you have to say like, yeah, that was helped along and encouraged by the media um, and made possible essentially by media sanctions there, you know, a.k.a. a force outside the church. And so I think the effect this is having when you look at like how different segments of the sex abuse crisis have affected the sort of Catholic world. Um, I, I think that this sort of act, the second act in the sex abuse crisis, the first one being in 2002, uh, because it has exposed a significant lawlessness, institutional weakness, uh, you know, inside the church has, has sort of ignited these conservative fantasies about a hyper-authoritarian church that not only rules itself with like a, an, uh, an iron grip, but also is capable of like governing actually mm -hmm. the public <laughs> mm -hmm. or having a role in the governance of, of, you know, nation states. Yeah. And so you're seeing a lot of that. There's like a little bit of a who to do a little fluff going on on the right right now where several of them are kind of drifting into what they're calling sort of integralism, which is a sort of integrated civil and religious government and the religious portion is the institutional Catholic Church. Uh, but it, I can't see it as anything but a reaction to this exposure of extraordinary weakness. It's, it's fantasizing it's all of this away. It's not a good time to pitch that. No, it's a really bad time to pitch it because the church doesn't <laughs> seem capable of governing itself. But yeah, you want to get you want to get on a on a on a positive note. You want to try to right. build Look, off. Look, the church is really <laughs> whipping ass, governing itself and managing its own affairs. So why not let it be involved in managing our affairs? Uh, but like, but when you look at what's actually going on with the church, it's it's not like oh yes, well you have some powerful people who are covering up sex abuse and that's bad. They should be replaced with people who can wield that power, but in a good way. It's like, no, you have a lot of powerless people, mm -hmm. actually, who are just kind of scrambling and, and uh, trying at times to do things about a crisis which is basically out of their control at this point. And the rock and the hard place they're against is really only the civil authorities and the media can do anything about it for them. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, that hugely diminishes the institutional prestige. Sure. Right. Uh, that they're trying to cultivate. Mm -hmm. So they're in a position now where because of investigative journalism and so forth, the investigation, mean, the, the institutional prestige is kind of it's been exposed. Right. It, it, you know, the media didn't destroy it, but exposed that it, it was hiding a great weakness and a great infirmity in the institution. Mm hmm. And I think that has caused, in part, this big reaction. So a lot of people see this kind of thing that's going on on the right right now with integralism as being about, um, you know, conservatism and failures of liberalism. And I do think there's a part of that. And there's always been a conservative critique of liberalism along these lines, a reactionary critique of liberalism as opposed to the left critique of liberalism. Uh, but I, I have to think this is much more about the Catholic Church than it is about that. It's about weakness in the church it's about the collapse of kind of institutional prestige mm -hmm. it's about a situation no one really knows how to recover from and the best that they seem to have come up with is like yeah the young pope that would be awesome what if you had a pope who instead of having no power had a lot of power mm -hmm. what if there were enforcement mechanisms what if the church could govern what if it could govern itself and it could be involved in governing sort of worldly affairs and and I'm saying 
you got to face reality here mm-hmm. and look at the kind of situation the church is actually in mm-hmm. and answer questions about, well, can it govern itself? Mm-hmm. Is it, is it, they need to go into rebuild mode. I feel right, like right, right, uh, right. You need to need take to the crisis as being what it is, which is a real bona fide crisis. They need to start throwing a bunch of games, get the high <laughs> draft picks to get the best. You got to trust the process. Get the best priests the next time, and you know, start over. I don't know what the answer is in terms of how do you recover uh, an ability in the institution to self-govern. I don't know if there is a a way to do that in contemporary life. And sometimes I think that these arguments that the church should take over the governance of the nation state is more about the feeling that the nation state has caused the church to be unable to govern itself. Perhaps it's also just absurd. I mean, uh, what, 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 how would this even work? Um, I mean, it's a they very don't have an army. I mean, uh, that's why I'm saying it's it's a it's it's a fantasy. I and mean, the United States becoming an, an integralist country, it's only 25 percent or less Catholic, and it's a majorly Protestant country in every respect, historically and otherwise. Um, so, so that's why I'm saying I, I'm not sure these are <sighs> completely. Um, serious proposals in the sense that I don't think anyone's like trying to get a, a candidate for 2020 to pick them up. I think that they are a response of some kind to to the environment we're seeing, and and so I, I think as this sef- this segment of the sex abuse crisis kind of wears on and we learn more, you'll probably see a little bit more of that. Uh, in other news, Finland has a new government. They do indeed. Uh, the uh, Social Democratic Party is you know won the last election do you vote for them uh i vote for the left alliance okay in my fantasy finland uh you know fantasy government uh, league um and so you know it's going to be a left government that's going to be fun we're going to have the left alliance the social democratic party the center party and the swedish people's party and the green party you know so they're all gonna have a big 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 hoedown uh, there. They released, or there some of the uh, program items have been released, and um, they're very interesting. They're going to increase spending. They already okay. spend a lot, yeah. but why not spend more? Why not? Um, they're already up over fifty percent of GDP, but just keep going. Yeah, just keep going. In my view, go to a hundred. Go, just keep going to a hundred. You know, go do more than a hundred. You know, uh, I don't know how that's possible, but can you know, you know, they could probably figure it out. They're very innovative. Foot on the gas. Um, the um they're gonna raise tax uh on fossil fuels we can't do that by the way that's not allowed but apparently they can in finland um don't talk about it Mm -hmm. you get criticized if you talk about it here they're gonna raise tax on mining same thing not allowed to talk about that uh in the u.s that makes you a reactionary um and raise taxes on alcohol and tobacco good Um, those were the ones that were listed and also some capital taxes um mostly seemingly targeting foreigners and tax-exempt entities so like tax havens tax shelters like uh you know if i own some real estate in uh finland and i live in america and i sell it and make some sort of capital gain they're gonna try to get claw some of that back um which i guess right now they don't Mm -hmm. uh do that uh fair enough so it'll be fun the one thing that i think is most interesting for um you know, in terms of uh, they're increasing pensions, you know, the usual usual stuff. The one thing I think is interesting um, in terms of the U.S. discourse is, you remember when they had the basic income pilot 
yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it was two years long. And then you had pieces in like the New York Times and that like it all kind of span out where they're like, uh, the basic income pilot failed. Right. And like, what? I it, was was it was always a time limited pilot program, but whatever. But in the articles, they also were like, in fact, Finland is going in the opposite direction. Finland's, they, they hate the basic income because they hate giving money to people without working. And the way to prove this is that the conservative government has implemented basically activation or work requirements yeah. on the basic unemployment allowance. Right. There right. was all this stuff. There was a piece in the oh, New York I Times. I remember it was, it was very infuriating. And what was so infuriating about it was th- they treat other countries as if there's no internal disagreement or yeah, anything. Yeah, it's just yeah. like if the government does it, then the people are for it, which they don't do for the yeah, U.S. No. And in particular, what was weird about that is there was a massive strike against that policy, the activation policy for the basic unemployment allowance. It was not popular in polls. There was a citizen's initiative to get it undone. Like you can fill out signatures and require that kind of stuff. And the new government is getting rid of it. Yeah. And so what, what does, you know, like what, what happened to this narrative? Like, are, do we ever get to adjust this narrative or is it going to be, well, no, it was stamped out that Finland, uh, they don't like giving money for nothing. And you can prove this through the activation requirement, which was so unpopular that the government lost the yeah. next election, not solely for that reason. And it got canceled. Um, Oh no. So, you know, it's, it's some internal stuff, but I I, th- I think it's interesting always, you know, to watch the people on the frontier, see yeah. what they're up to. Um and, and it, it's good to see, you know, they the the business party, the National Coalition Party is out. Goodbye. The, the far right, you know, racist party is out. They both used to be in government, they're gone. Um so, you know, making some progress. Rip making some progress um we also went shopping for baby merch yesterday and saw some really cursed baby merch (laughs) we did um yes i i I want wine themed onesies like i'll have a bottle of the house white with a picture of a baby bottle yeah there's a lot of a lot of attitudinal uh fifteen hundred dollar jeans stroller novelty t-shirt the jean stroller was incredible so it was like diesel branded yeah. denim and it looked like it like you know like there were like paint specks on it yeah. and like, like that sort of stuff but it was the outer uh you know the like canvas part of a of a bassinet um and then even worse was fifteen hundred dollars fifteen hundred dollars it's like the most hideous thing i've ever seen you and also the three extremely top of the line double strollers for that <laughs> for six children yes well certainly if you got the muse piece of shit uh oh it was it was it's incredible really rough. it was incredible i can't imagine who would <laughs> buy well the, it's it's one it, it lies in that no man's land of like this is something that no one would buy uh this is something that it seems like no no rich person would buy because you know tastes being what they are in the upper class at the moment but also it's something that only a rich person could afford right um so it's very uh, mysterious it's a it's a cursed totem <laughs> this is uh, all right but it's time for us to welcome our guest dante stallworth all right joining us now is a former uh, tennessee volunteer former saint former eagle former patriot former brown former raven Former Redskin, <laughs> former Huffington Post writer, former CNN contributor, or maybe present CNN contributor, unclear. The man, the myth, <laughs> the legend, Dante Stallworth. Dante Stallworth, thank you so much no for joining problem. us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me. Out of all the teams you played for, which was your favorite, can you Ooh, say? Um, I'll get myself in trouble if I answer that. All right, um, we, we can take a pass. 
I, take but, a pass. I, but I, I did enjoy playing in uh, most of the most of the cities that I enjoyed. Not all of them, but most of them I did. Yeah. Um, the fans were always great uh, in every city, and uh, you know, I, I mean, obviously, I was drafted to New Orleans, so I mm-hmm. love New Orleans. I love uh, New England, Philly, Baltimore. I mean, I was I, I played in a number of different places, mm-hmm. so I was uh, blessed to meet a lot of different. Uh, people from different cities around the country and um, that that was always something that was pretty cool to get to see and meet with and interact with fans from all over the country and yeah. kinda, uh, you know get their get their stories and hear how you know they became fans of their their respective team that that was always cool to me I always enjoyed uh, listening to different stories so where are you from originally originally from Sacramento California Beautiful. One of my one of my best friends is from Pleasanton. Okay, yeah, and, uh, that's not too far. Yeah. If I had all the money in the world, I frequently tell Matt I would move to California. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it is unfortunately, gorgeous. it takes now. It does take all it the money. It does in the take world. all the money <laughs> in the world. <laughs> yeah. But the weather's always great. There are things to do. The people are wonderful. True. It's beautiful. Yeah. So, how do you like DC? I love DC. I, I never thought that I would enjoy it as much as I as I do. I had been here a number of times before mm-hmm. uh, visiting friends. When I lived in Miami, uh, I would just come up to New York or come up to D.C., just to, usually during the wintertime, just to get a change of seasons because uh, if you know Miami and South Florida, there is no change of season in the wintertime. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. 75 and 80 mm-hmm. degrees. I'm not complaining, but, uh, you know, I could change every now and then, a change of yeah. weather, right? So I would come up here, and I really liked D.C., and I really liked New York, and... Uh, I, I tried to convince the universe in 2010 that uh, I needed to be playing in New York with Eli Manning since I had just missed Peyton Manning at the University of Tennessee. The year Peyton graduated was the year that I got there, mm-hmm. and then Eli was a year or two younger than me, and I tried to recruit him to Tennessee, and of course he ended up at Ole Miss. So I thought that this was going to be the culmination of me getting to New York, playing with Eli, finally. And it didn't happen, but I kept the New York number. And almost five years ago, I was uh, leaving Miami. I was retired and wanted to get out of Miami and start somewhere fresh. And New York was first on my list. And uh, I had a speaking engagement at Johns Hopkins and came here to D.C. to visit a few friends. And I walked into a job at the Huffington Post and... Uh, so I canceled my plans to New York and moved here instead. And I'm totally, I'm, I'm so glad that I did that because, um, I, I can travel to New York and get, jump on the train or whatever. It's, it's relatively easy to do that. But, uh, yeah, I enjoy being able to see the sky every now and then. (laughs) New York is cool, but I can travel and get on the train. So I love DC. I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad that I've been here almost five years and uh friends come to visit and they don't people don't really know how cool dc is you think it's kind of and it has its you know negatives of politics and all that but there are a lot of cool people here there are a lot of cool things here the museums are great um the restaurants are amazing it's a it's Mm -hmm. a uh, diverse city culturally with uh you know being the nation's capital all the embassies here so you have embassy workers government workers um it's cool and then you know the people that were here from the beginning, uh, before DC was what it is today. So I, I enjoy that melting pot of people. It's it's pretty cool. It is a really interesting town, and uh, even the politics can be fun from time yeah, to time. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of, 
We have uh, the administration currently in D.C. belongs to a president who's maybe the first president ever to try to pick a fight with the NFL. <laughs> try to start a league. He, he has a very NFL. Uh, didn't he come down on the Black Lives Matter kneeling and all oh, that yeah. stuff? Oh, yeah. He had a huge beef with that. So, so what has been your perspective on Trump just as someone who knows the league? Um, so I have, uh, I, I, I have to admit that, uh, in 2007, actually it might've been January, 2008, um, I'm in the locker room and playing for the New England Patriots. We had just, uh, beat the Chargers, San Diego Chargers in the AFC championship game. And I remember one of our, one of my teammates, um, Ellis Hobbs and Asante Samuel yelling in my direction and saying things like, uh, you know, after, after we had, we were in the locker room and we kind of got together and Belichick was going to say his post-game speech and Ellis, I heard Ellis Hobbs yell out, hey, we've got big money in here today, so he must <laughs> be doing something right. And everyone's kind of looking in my direction, so I'm like, oh, is Bon Jovi here again? Or who's <laughs> here today? Like, and so I'm looking around and uh, I don't see anyone. And so they, you know, I'm just like, whatever, so... I'm, you know, we just won the we just won the AFC Championship. I'm going to my first Super Bowl, so I'm excited about that. And then, uh, as Bill is getting ready to talk, then Asante Samuel yells out something. Um, it's like uh, said something like, "Look at big money over there," and they keep looking in my direction. I'm like, "Who in the hell are they <laughs> talking about?" And I didn't see anyone. And then I don't know how I missed him, but literally standing two feet away from me, probably because he was in my locker, uh, was Donald <laughs> Trump. Oh wow! <laughs> and uh, yeah, I didn't realize, you know, 10 years later that he would be the, you know, taking the uh, oath of uh, presidency in the United States. I had no idea. But uh, if I did, I might have accidentally stepped on his toe or something. With <laughs> hurt his bone spurs. Was he wearing his 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 uh, uniform of his suit? Or did he have like his coat on? Yeah, on. You know what? Uh, this was 2007 and a lot of guys were dressing like that, including myself with the big baggy clothes. So, uh, you know, it might have. He fit right in. Donald Trump, yeah. He, there's, this, there's this meme of the, I think it's the 2004 NBA draft class and they all have pants like Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. <laughs> uh, you know, like, damn they got all the same tailor like how the hell <laughs> he just never got the memo <laughs> right i think it's been so strange watching the various fights he tries to pick because it almost seems like a big motivation for him in taking the office of the presidency was to prosecute these personal grudges he has exactly Exactly. And the NFL just seems to be part of that. And, yeah. and Colin I, Kaepernick and mm -hmm. all of it just seems rolled into this personal issue he has. Yeah, he's uh, I think we we know who we're dealing with as someone who's uh, vindictive and he holds grudges and uh, he is uh, like a toddler. Yes. And, you know, sometimes you you have to just treat him the way he is. And sometimes you ignore him and let him go on his rants. And then other times when. You know, there are things that you need to address, like when he says maybe the player shouldn't be in the country for kneeling, uh, then you speak up and you have to, you know, you, you've got to remind him of how history has been with uh, people who have mandated uh, what, what what is called forced uh, patriotism. And, uh, you know, I, I'm always very careful of when bringing up uh, Nazi Germany and making any type of comparisons uh, with with any other nation, but there is a uh, a history of uh, of Nazi Germany before they uh, met or, or during the meetings that they were meeting to 
kind of figure their Nuremberg laws, they looked at a lot of American race laws mm-hmm. and they decided uh, that America was the only country that was leading uh, in laws that they wanted to instill in in Germany and Nazi Germany at that time. So yeah. there is a connection, and I think it's dangerous if we, if we uh, you know, it's, you got to be careful and, and understand the history and the parallels, but also I think it's important not to completely ignore it because uh, no one wants to get anywhere near that type of hate where it's, uh, where it's you know, it's a, it's a system by the state that is perpetuated through minority groups and uh his Twitter feed and obviously um, Steve Bannon and uh, now the other Antichrist, uh, Steve Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they are, uh, they, they are people that are, are dangerous people. They have a lot of power mm-hmm. in the most powerful country in the world. And I think it's important for everyone to uh, speak up for everyone that is being uh, targeted because they are, it doesn't matter if it's LGBTQ, doesn't matter if it's... Um, immigrants muslims or jews uh everyone we all need to stick together because this is this is a dangerous period in our time and i think uh we should treat it as such i don't sometimes it's funny to see the memes and all the tweets and all that but we are in a dangerous time and sometimes i I wonder if social media kind of dumbs that down a little bit and uh and we don't we don't really as a whole i mean i think people understand it is dangerous and we see the moves that are happening that are obviously dangerous um the way they're treating the kids in custody in during uh, in the immigration right, ICE. kids dying in American custody. I mean, it's you hear stories about it all the time, and it's it's just I mean, we we need to understand that this is a perilous time for our country and for the world. And uh, I, I not to you know bring the gloom and doom, but uh, mm-hmm. you know I just I I think that uh, that is an important time, and, and we should speak out. Doesn't matter if Trump's a Republican or so-called conservative. We need to speak out, and that's why I've appreciated Justin Amash uh, and what he's been able to do uh, from that side of the aisle. It's not easy, understandably, but he's taken a principled stand from what I could see. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he even told his constituents he didn't care if they voted him out. He right. was like, you know, I, I have to do what I have to do and right. it, with respect to the Constitution. I respect that. Yeah, I there's there's that. really something there. Yeah, that's unusual, especially going to a town hall of your constituents and saying, look, if you vote me out for this, you vote me out for this. But it's what I have to do. Right. That takes a lot of. I mean, we are in interesting times. And you see uh, yesterday with AOC and Ted Cruz uh, (laughs) agreeing on uh, a lifetime ban for former members of Congress, which I'm actually on board with. Yeah. Uh, And I saw a lot of people (laughs) tweeting like, oh, like, damn, I'm on the same page with Ted Cruz. Like. I needed to go take a shower or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it is interesting times. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, I think we, it, it's important now. I, I don't want to get into the both sides because I, I don't believe in that. But uh, I, I do think that, uh, you know, when you can get these small little victories to have some bipartisanship, I think it's important to work together. And hopefully the little steps can build you to something bigger down the road. You never know. I mean, it's, it's it's easy to be here and live in this city and understand uh, how how divided it all is, but uh, you never know. I mean, I, who did we ever think that we would? Even though it's you know it's an interesting bill, and if if, if it was clean as they both suggested, said they would sign on to, yeah. I mean, you never know what that could lead to. So I'll take a, it's it. A, I'll take it for sure. Yeah. It's a good start. So as you look at 2020, does anyone stand out to you on the Democratic side as being somebody that you're really excited about? Um. Inslee, 
Hickenlooper. <laughs> John Delaney. No, I, you know what? I am, uh, I've, uh, I've, I've long liked, liked, uh, Elizabeth Warren. She's um, great. I, I've, I've liked her for a long time and, uh, with her being Massachusetts, uh, I think that probably adds into it a little bit, but, um, I, I've always liked and respected what she's been doing. She, uh, doesn't take any shit from Wall Street, and uh, I think at the time, you know, with the um, with the uh, economic uh, crash that we had in 2008 and 2009, um, I, I don't know much a lot of, about economics, but from what I observed was there were people essentially who took sides. Some took sides yeah. for Wall Street and some took sides for people. And... Um, and those are the times, you know, when, when troubling times is when you really get to see who's for you and who's against mm-hmm. you. And uh, I've always appreciated her, her stance on um, the way she's uh, attacked them for just their, what, what, what's normal procedure for them, but it, to the everyday American, the average American, it's like that doesn't make sense to them, yeah. things that shouldn't be happening. So I've appreciated her coming out with policy plans for everything. Yeah. Um, I think that's really cool. You need more policy. We need to understand um, you know, how, how our economy works, what our tax dollars go to in the Defense Department, like where are our troops on the ground? We, we don't know any of these things, and yeah. as a country, we don't. And uh, I'm glad that she's at least uh, bringing some kind of light to that. I, I like what Pete Buttigieg is doing uh, mm-hmm. as a young millennial. I think that's, I think that's cool. I think uh, he's, uh, he's able to kind of transcend. He's... You know, he's, I've been at a number of his events, and uh, it's, you know, people love to hear him speak, and he speaks, he speaks well, he says some good things. Uh, I like what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've always kind of liked Bernie, so uh, he's, you know, he's always in the mix. I know some people are still upset with him from 2016, but I'm like, you're going to be mad at Bernie, but not at Find a lot of Bernie Sanders fans of this podcast. Yeah, and I think that's like what essential that that Elizabeth Warren delivers, especially vis-a-vis Wall Street, is she understands their business very well. Right, right. And I had a, a friend of mine uh, who had his family was mostly bankers, people on Wall Street, and he said, you know, Wall Street hates Bernie Sanders, but they're afraid of Elizabeth Warren uh, yeah, because she yeah, really yeah, understands right. what they're doing. Yep. And I mean, I think that, you know, you can certainly see any combination of an administration, you know, if you have a dream team where Elizabeth Warren is Secretary of Treasury or something like that in a Bernie Sanders administration or vice right. versa. Um, but, I, but I think that they both bring something really special. Yeah. I, I'm really I, excited about. I need Liz Warren in as president, vice president, or at the very least treasury. Uh, she's yeah. gotta be, I mean, no matter what happens, uh, she's Definitely. gotta be in one of those three slots. Yeah. I, she's, I she's really, she's too talented bringing not to something be, and she really cares. And, 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 it, and it seems genuine. She's done it for a number of, of years. And uh, you know, you see the stories about her and uh, teaching other professors how to go about their business. Yeah. And you know, that, that that takes a that takes a special person to do that and what was donald trump doing at that time i don't even want to know you like literally don't want to know but uh no and it's i think it just speaks to the person that she is and the person that uh the current president is not yeah absolutely so what what are you what are you up to these days how do you fill your time so i i kind of i'm I'm all over the place. I do speaking engagements. Um, I speak to colleges. 
uh, speak at with uh, professional sports teams. Um, I'm currently working on a piece that's going to take a little while, but uh, um, so I, I I do some writing. I want to write more than I do. Um, I've got some uh, things in the works with writing a book. I've been speaking with some people uh, who are shooting some. We're sharing some ideas and. Uh, now is the season where a lot of guys are having uh, their charity events, and so mm-hmm. which I'm not complaining. You get to you know you travel across the country, and um, these guys raise usually they're former athletes, and they raise a ton of money, um, and and it and it and it all goes to charity. They all have different uh, charities that they do, but that's the season that I'm in now. And then I still stay connected with football. I still have a relationship with the NFL and do some things with them. Uh, and also with uh, NFL Network, you know, you, uh, they have their studios in in, uh, in New York. So um, during the season, it's pretty easy for me to get up there and sure, yeah. go on air a little bit and talk a little bit about football. And uh, so that's, you know, kind of doing all those little different things. It's, right. it's, uh, it's something that that I'm that I'm having fun with and it's it's nice and easy light schedule but it's fun I enjoy it right so when it comes to politics I've noticed you know on Twitter it seems like you have a you're primarily or um, you have a greater interest in foreign policy perhaps than you do uh, domestic policy is that is that right like what where, where did that come from and what are what's like your general orientation around Iran and Venezuela and you know all this stuff going on yeah, so I, I think it all, for me, it, it's all based in history. I, I grew up and loved history as a kid. And so I I remember, I, w- I would say it was uh, probably after 9-11, years after 9-11, and, uh, you know, you start to hear the stories of things going wrong in Iraq, and I wasn't paying much attention to the Iraq war. I I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that. Um, we were attacked on 9-11, and the government was going to do something about it. But, uh, you know, as the years dragged on, and you would hear these stories about torture, and then I started to wonder, okay, like, what the hell is going on? So then I started to read more about Iraq and, and how we actually even got into that war. Because what I knew up to that point was that Saddam Hussein was trying to kill us. That's why I, that yeah, was pretty yeah. much my... That was the public... You know I mean? uh, that that yeah. was the statement, right? And, and you... You know, you just if you believe what your government says, then uh, that's what you believed at the time. And there was obviously, according to them, uh, sufficient evidence that he was uh, trying to uh, develop weapons of mass destruction, seeking them or possessing them. And so uh, I started to dig into that a little more, and, and I started to understand that uh, essentially foreign policy was tied into history. And I also love geography, so it was also tied into geopolitics as well. So sure. I think that's how it all started. And then I just went into a, like this spider web of learning about the different histories of, uh, you know, in relationships with us in Iran, us in uh, the British, us in other countries like in the Philippines, uh, and and you know, again, a lot of a lot of these things we weren't taught in school, but I thought it was interesting to be able to delve into these a little bit and so that's that's really how that started and just to see like american foreign policy uh since world war ii has uh i mean there were a lot in prior to world war ii but 
since World War II, it's it's been you know all about uh, maintaining supremacy in the empire or gaining supremacy of the empire and maintaining it over Russia. And once Russia fell, then we were the global um, power and the sole global power. And it, now the the politics, the foreign policy, has been to maintain that. And and uh, you know from a from the outside looking in it like that doesn't sound like a problem but when you see what it what's happening with other countries and what that what that entails maintain the empire having you know 800 plus uh bases around the world in multiple different countries drone bases and fighting the war on quote-unquote war on terrorism now in many different countries and you know as american citizens we hardly even know like where our soldiers are, where where are we drop, why are we selling bombs and weapons to Saudi Arabia? You know, there are all these different things that have intrigued me, and try and I try to learn more about. And you see, and it does it's it's it, it doesn't help the American people, and it doesn't help the people that we are allegedly trying to help. Right. So you're so you so you got interested in sort of anti-imperialism based on Iraq, right? Yep. And then ha- have you drifted? Because I gather from some folks that you might be interested in socialism or socialism light or, you know, I think you were you were at Bosker's book event or, mm. you know, so so what's what's going on with that? Have you have you read his book? Have you read? Uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I have not read the book yet, but uh, but I am looking forward to it. And. For me, like I, I listen to a lot of Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. and uh, he has been completely Martin Luther King. If he was alive today, he wouldn't even recognize the person that we are that 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 is celebrated, you know, throughout the country as this kind of washed figure who is uh, nothing like the MLK was at the point of of his assassination, and he spoke a lot about. Uh, government and corporations and how they wanted to um you know give uh so uh capitalism for the poor and socialism for the wealthy um and maintaining uh that that dominance economically and uh so it's always been something that i looked at from just a humanitarian point of view and it sounds like uh the right thing to do but i think the term socialism especially in this country has just been uh flipped completely upside down and it's not even now it just means evil bad venezuela uh and they'll even throw in a a russia communist to like for good measure add an extra flavor Mm -hmm. um but you know at the end of the day i think it's all about it's all about helping people, and regardless sure. of if you call it socialism or capitalism, or democratic capitalism, whatever the hell that means, <laughs> um, it, it if you're helping people, then who cares what the name is? Right. Okay. So you're you're <clears throat> you're you're interested in uh, you know healthcare and education and equality and so on. Not necessarily what word are we going to use and you know uh, fighting that fight over <laughs> words that have gotten tarnished in all sorts of ways yeah and, and and i think that's been the gop strategy because you know they try to tie bernie and aoc into venezuela um you know and that and again that, that all they've been all these terms have been interchangeable interchangeable 
you know, the current situation in Venezuela, then they say, oh, that's like, that's what socialism is. That's what AOC that wants in this country. That's what Bernie <laughs> wants in this country. You know what I mean? And 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 that, and they've been, you know, to their base, their market. It's it's been it's been great. You see the memes on Twitter. You see people talking about it. Um, on they they'll go on um, on these mainstream uh, news uh, shows and and talk about these things like they're all interchangeable. So, um, I. The one thing I notice about when I, as more, I'm still learning the city, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's really interesting how it's, especially now, how it's come to a point where people are uh, in a situation where they're either red team or blue team, you know what I mean? And, it's, and, I, and I look at it like, 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 dude, I'm retired. Like, I'm not, it's funny because people automatically assume if I, if I say something that Trump did that was negative, which is what happens every other day or every day. Uh, if I mention something, then they'll say, oh, well, what about, you didn't, like, where were you when Obama was droning Pakistan or Yemen? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, if, if, if you want to go back and check my Twitter feed, <laughs> yeah, well, you think just because, like, I'm black, like, I, like, Obama, I'm a super Obama fan? No, I criticized Obama. I was, I wanted Obama to win. Uh, I didn't want John McCain to be president. I didn't want Mitt Romney to be president, but I was not a, uh, like, like blind supporter of sure, Obama, yeah. I criticized him heavily on his, on his policies, foreign policies, drone policy that Trump has now inherited. Um, I, I criticized all those things, and so I just always find it interesting when people automatically assume that I'm a Democrat or uh, that I'm that I'm a super Obama supporter who was quiet, you know, during his drone policy and the CIA policies and stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, we we get that as well for sure. Uh, <laughs> no, you, you either get one of two things: you get, uh, you know, uh, if you're criticizing Trump or criticizing Republicans or whatever, they're like, "Well, uh, actually, did you know the Dems did this or that? You're a hypocrite," and so on. And then if you criticize both, uh, then you get sort of democratic diehards who are mad at you and are right. like you're saying they're the same i cannot believe uh, you know and there's no there's no winning uh, uh, no matter which path yeah. you take and even if you don't call yourself a socialist and you say you're not a socialist like they called obama a socialist. that's true <laughs> right <laughs> yeah Jesus. right like it's not just bernie and aoc right. who say that right. they're democratic socialists right. <laughs> they call all yeah, there's uh, there's no escaping. Uh, they they were actually there was someone who tweeted the other day a big Republican figure um, that one of Biden's proposals was the most radical he's seen in the election. <laughs> and it's like there's there's no escaping the, this sort of treatment. You yeah, can be as right. uh, conservative as you want as right. a Democrat, and they're gonna paint you that way. Yep. So I have one I have one last question for you. This is a bit of a uh, you know a bit of a, a personal question because. When I, you know, when you were playing, I was in high school and I was real into Madden. You know, I played Madden all the time. Yes. And you, your speed in the game <laughs> seemed very, uh, very high. I, I can't imagine. It seemed out of uh, reality, uh, perhaps. I mean, is it, has anyone ever told you that, that you were very fast in Madden and it seemed maybe like you were too fast in Madden? <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I get um, every now and then on Twitter, I'll get someone who uh who tweets me in and says uh something about like how many how much money they used to win playing with me in madden or how many fights they've gotten because people thought they were cheating yes. <laughs> cheating with my speed <laughs> um yeah it, it's always funny and cool to hear it's still surreal to me to, 
to hear those stories because that I, that's I was that kid. I was that kid growing up playing video games. Sure. And, you know, looked like uh, taping on my on VHS. My mother still has my VHS tapes of you know 49er games and highlights and so I was that kid and so for me for people to come up and want to take a picture with me or something like that because I played football it's, it's always still even now like it's still so it's still so surreal to me right all right well thanks for joining us no and problem. uh you know good luck with everything appreciate and I really appreciate coming over thanks for having me yep